Amen. This morning we are continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I'm, I said it already this morning in the announcements, but I truly am excited for where God is going to lead us. Uh, last week we began our journey uh, following Christ through the Gospel of Mark. And as I said last week, we need to follow closely so that we'll get where we want to go. And I made the illustration last week about following someone, that how many of us enjoy following someone when we don't know the destination. And before I made that reference, it probably had been quite a while since I had actually had to follow someone or ended up following someone, even inadvertently, to a destination. And I'm not kidding you. I know this sounds like something pastors say because it just reinforces the point I made. But this actually happened, so you can believe this part at least. That was a joke. But anyway, okay, so um, Sunday morning after service, I ended up following someone inadvertently, and they said they felt a lot of pressure uh, after my illustration, and so I thought that was kind of appropriate. And then just yesterday, um, yes, amen, uh, just yesterday, I ended up uh, following someone when I wasn't quite sure where the destination was, and I told Sandra when we got to where we were going, I said, you know, it's so ironic how God works these things out. And so I don't know if you found yourself in a situation where you were following someone and kind of brought to mind what we talked about last week. But I love that God did that because it reminded me that, again, we need to follow closely to what we're going to find in the Gospel of Mark so that we can get where we want to go. And what is our destination? We said this last week. At the end of this series... And really, this is the destination of our lives. This should be our desire every single day as followers of Christ, that our destination as followers of Christ is to be fully devoted, more devoted followers of Christ every single day. That is our goal. So as we journey through the gospel of Mark, what is our destination? We want to follow closely to the words of Christ so that we will become fully devoted followers of Christ, that we'll in a more impactful way. We'll desire to know Christ and to make him known. And so we desire to journey this way. And I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, but listen, you don't understand. I'm a follower of Christ in the sense that I'm a Christian, but I really haven't been following Christ. Like I I am a a saved person. I believed in Christ. I received him as my savior, but, but pastor, I'm not really an active follower of Christ. I don't live my day thinking about what would Jesus have me do. I mostly have lived my days of what I want to do, and I want to get back to. I want to get back to that time of being that devoted follower of Christ. And you are in the right place. You are making the right decision to get into his word and to begin that journey anew. At any point in our Christian lives, we have the availability to us of great grace And we can, by his mercy and grace, say, Lord, I have not been the follower I should be. Help me to be more committed to you today. Help me to make you a priority. And so this is not about anyone feeling bad about where they've been or beating yourself up. This is about making a decision today to say, I'm going to receive his grace anew. And I'm going to become that devoted follower of Christ. Not by my working, but by his working in me because I desire to glorify him. Even though maybe I haven't done that as I should, I desire to start anew today. That's the beauty of our God. Every day is a day of second chances. You might say, well, I'm on like my 15th chance. Well, praise God. If there's breath in your lungs to repent, he is there with you. And so we can turn anew every day. And so maybe today would be that day for you. Now we talked about this last week. If you missed the, the message last week, our first uh, walking through the gospel of Mark, you can go online, northgoodland.org or our app, 
North Goodland BC in your app store. You can find the sermon there and check that out and get caught up. But we want to remind you of one key fact. In the Gospel of Mark, it's unique in the sense that Mark doesn't give us the detailed conversations that other Gospels do. Other Gospels give us a lot of information about certain aspects of conversations that Jesus had. Two of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of John are John chapter 3, John chapter 4. And the reason is because we read this amazing conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. In chapter 4, we read this amazing conversation with the Samaritan woman. And I love that those two conversations because it shows us the desired impact and the reach of Christ's ministry for the religious and even those that the religious look down upon. And so we love those conversations. Mark Gospel is a little different. He's more or less giving us just the impactful moments. It's kind of given us that moment, and we're on to the next one, and we're on to the next one. I encouraged you last week to read Mark chapter 1 in its entirety, and I pray that you're able to do that. Maybe you even read further. Maybe you kept reading into the Gospel of Mark, and you saw that word immediately or forthwith or, or those kinds of phrasings that would imply that, that speedy nature to the Gospel of Mark. I want, let's go back to Mark chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to open up the gospel again by reading that first verse again. And again, if you're using the Bibles provided for you in the chairs, that's page 697. So if you're using the Bibles provided in the chairs there, that's page 697. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 to, again, just remind us of the heart of what Mark desires to communicate to us. So Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we unpacked that last week. We spent some time on this. And I pray that, that this last week, you've actually meditated on that very verse. That the, the reality of reflecting over that powerful truth has actually changed your perspective this week. That when you stop and realize that he is the actual son of God, God himself, the gospel is made available. That relationship you can have, sins forgiven, and a relationship restored, heaven guaranteed, apart from our works. I pray that knowing that, reflecting over that this week, has really encouraged you. And I know that if you're like me, every day I need that reminder. And this week especially, when things come into our lives, or we hear of things happening in our world, we need to pause and reflect over who Jesus really was and is and desires to be in our lives. So our perspective is not an earthly perspective, but a heavenly perspective. That we see this life in an eternal lens. I'm telling you, when you start to see your relationships in an eternal lens, it changes the relationship. Maybe not the other person, but it changes you in the relationship. If you're struggling in your marriage to make it work, well, guess what? See your spouse with an eternal perspective. See your marriage in an eternal perspective. See your job in an eternal perspective that you've been placed there by God's perfect plan to impact that place for Christ. You're not always going to like it. You're not always going to be happy doing it, but he's placed you there for a purpose. And we need to remember that. So I pray that reflecting over those truths in that simple verse really helped you this week. I know it encouraged me this week, many days, to continue to have the right perspective. So I want to kind of review quickly, because this is kind of part two to last week. We talked about the beginning of Christ's ministry uh, in verses 2 through 11 of Mark chapter 1. And the beginning of his ministry starts according to uh, Mark's gospel. We see the introduction of John the Baptist. Again, not the denomination, but the act of baptism. 
He was the forerunner or the herald of the coming Christ. He is actually the cousin of Christ and was born about six months before Christ. He was proclaiming a clear message, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and repent, prepare the way or your hearts for the Lord. That was the message of John the Baptist. And I said last week that he had a very interesting reputation. He was known for a couple of things. What was he known for? He was known for his dress and his diet, right? What was his dress? Someone tell me, camel's hair, right? Just kind of a wild man is the picture we get here. And what was his diet? Locusts and honey. And I said, man, if you ever come across some locusts and honey at the restaurant today, and I said this last week, let me know. I'd love to hear about that. Well, somebody brought me something today. And, and this is not, this wasn't from a restaurant. And this is a legit item. You could purchase this, which my mind is blown that I can go buy this. But anyway, someone brought it in and said, hey, I got something for you. and handed it to me. And then they said, if you try one, I'll try one. And I said, well, I'm not doing it in front of everybody because if I throw up, I don't want you to see that. Okay. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. So this is actually a, uh, a three-bar pack, and it actually is called Biblical Protein. <laughs> Israeli Locusts and Honey, Biblical Ingredients Energy Bar. So any energy people that love those energy bars, I got one for you. So, and it actually has, if you look really closely, you can see there's a little picture of Jesus on the box, which apparently this is really holy then because Jesus is on the box. He's on the wrapper too. He's got this weird thing around his head. I don't know. I hope Jesus doesn't look like that. But, but yeah, so interesting. Um, yeah, so we might have to try that. That might be a, a little adventure. There's three bars in the box. And so uh, tomorrow morning we'll be in the office, myself, Pastor Greg, and Kelsey Channel. So um, three of us, three bars. You guys see where I'm going. So the morning staff meeting might be a little interesting. We'll let you know how it goes. But John the Baptist was known for being this kind of wild man, but really there was nothing really wild about him. He brought a very clear message, a clear message of repentance. And when you read about John the Baptist, one of the interesting things is Jesus actually declares that he was the greatest prophet. If you really think about what he says in his eulogy in Matthew, when he recites John's impact, he said, there's no one greater born among women. Obviously, he's referring to man and not to himself as the son of God. He's referring to mankind. But that would make John very unique, even among the prophets. And John actually would be considered an Old Testament prophet, not a New Testament prophet, because the New Testament has not technically begun yet with Christ not even really beginning his ministry, let alone dying on the cross and rising again. And so when John's ministry begins, it seems really foreign to the New Testament. But if you place him in the Old Testament with those prophets, it actually fits very well with some of those things those prophets had done. So it was a very impactful, powerful position and role for the kingdom of of God. G, uh, John's uh, form of inviting people into this relationship of repentance and submission was one of baptism. Many of us know this. He baptized. He also baptized Christ. Again, not because of repentance or remission of sins, but as a submission to the Father. When Jesus was baptized, he was submitting himself to the Father's will and showing great dependence upon the Father to fulfill this beginning of his ministry. Also, when we are baptized, we are submitting ourselves as followers of Christ already saved. We're submitting ourselves to the submission and dependence upon Christ. We're publicly professing our faith in Christ and our desire to walk with Christ. We're saying we're surrendering our life to him. And in this moment, I'm giving over control. I'm, I'm submitting to Christ. And I'm so excited to share with you. You saw it in your bulletin. We have two opportunities where you can follow the Lord and believers baptism that we have planned. Uh, September 12th and October 
10th, two Sundays that we're kind of calling Baptism Sundays. And either of those Sundays, if you are saved, you've received Christ as your Savior, and you've not followed the Lord in believer's baptism, we invite you into that. You can join us on one of those two Sundays if it works for you. If you have questions about baptism, what does it mean? What does it not mean? I would love to speak to you more about that so you can see me after service today or maybe call the office, things like that. I would love to talk to you more about that. But that's how Jesus begins his ministry with the baptism of John. We also see in verses 12 and 13, the temptation of Christ. Again, Mark gives us really a quick snapshot of this moment. Matthew chapter four gives a much more detailed account of the interactions between Satan and Jesus and the conversation that takes place there. But the key point here is that Jesus demonstrated complete dependence on the father and showed he was victorious over the enemy, Satan. So what he just declared with his baptism, I'm submitting to the Father, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and then he showed in his action and practice, he actually meant what he meant or what he showed at his baptism. Does that make sense? So at his baptism, he's publicly professing dependence upon the Father. Then he goes out in the wilderness and lived that. Man, that that hit me kind of hard this week when I thought that through. So many of us make great professions of faith. But do we practically live out what we actually said we believe? We say, oh, yes, Lord Jesus, my life is yours. But do we live that out in a practical way? I heard a speaker say this week, if you can't say amen, just say ouch. Some of you are going to get that later. When I was reminding myself of this point, I, I was in my office and I had to say ouch a few times. I'm just being real. And Jesus put into practice what he actually said he believed and a great reminder to us to do the same by his grace. So moving into the new material this week, we did not get into this last week, but moving into the rest of this opening chapter, we want to kind of dive into together. We see uh, the first call to discipleship, the first call to discipleship. You're in Mark chapter one, look at verse 16. The first call to discipleship. So we see here in verse 16. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word this morning and we review this beginning of your earthly ministry, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, by the working of your spirit, make our minds able to understand how we need to apply this to our lives. Open our hearts that it wouldn't just be a head thing, but a heart thing. It would be, it'd be something that's connected to all of us, Lord. That, that it wouldn't just be all emotion with no knowledge or all knowledge with no emotion, but it'd be a mix of both of those where we just depend on you for wisdom and to lead us in how we should go into every single day. I pray that as we read this early and first accounts in Mark of discipleship and what it meant for these first four to follow you, And I pray that you remind us again that you have called us as followers of Christ to be just that, followers of Christ. And again, Lord, I know we've all stumbled in some way. We've all taken our eyes off you. 
If there's someone sitting in this room right now that has been judgmental towards somebody maybe that has stumbled in their walk, I pray that you would convict them of that. That they would realize that the same grace that they've received from you, that other individual needs grace. Encouragement, yes. A challenging from your word, yes. But Lord, more than that, they need grace to be encouraged to get back up. And so I pray you'd help us to, to understand in a balanced way how to walk this out in our lives. Help us to put into practice what we say we believe by your grace to do it consistently for your glory. And again, Lord, where we fail, we pray that we'd repent of those things, turn and trust in you because your mercy and grace are new every morning. Thank you for being the God that you are. Thank you for not being the God that we want you to be sometimes, but the God that we need you to be. And so, Father, I pray that we just surrender all to you today, desiring for you to lead, guide, and direct. And thank you for this word, which we know is true and a foundation to our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, we see this record that Mark gives us of the four individuals that come to Christ in discipleship. They're followers of Christ in discipleship, meaning they're attaching themselves to the ministry of Christ. They're saying, we're going to partner with this individual. We want to follow him and see where he leads us. Again, Mark records that Simon or Peter, same individual, and Andrew, who were brothers, were the first disciples called by Christ. Then we see James and John, also brothers. These are known as the sons of Zebedee or the sons of thunder later in other gospels. Uh, they had a little bit of a hot streak, um, just to say the least. Um, there's a story where Jesus was traveling through a village and the people said, we don't want to give you shelter here. We just want you out of our town. Just move on. And James and John's solution was, can we call down fire from heaven and consume the whole town? A little bit of an anger issue. Okay. A little bit of a temper. Okay. But they were so offended that they would treat Jesus this way. They were just wanting to defend Christ and wanted to defend him as who he was. And so, uh, but that zeal led them to also be used greatly by God in the ministry. Uh, zeal and passion are so important in, in our relationship with Christ, but it needs to be under the constraint and leadership of the Holy Spirit. It's great to be passionate and zealous but it has to be submitted to the authority of God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we just come off as, as jerks or hotheads, right? We can be passionate, and we should be passionate of the things of Christ. I mean, I don't know how you cannot be passionate about Jesus when Jesus gave his life for you. Uh, that draws me to want to be passionate for Christ. But we have to be careful that we submit that to the will of the Father. Paul, Peter himself showed some great zeal at times. But again, when it wasn't under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he did things foolishly and recklessly. So we see James and John, Peter and Andrew being called to be his disciples, to be followers of Christ. And you have to ask yourself in the text, when did he do this calling? When did he call them into discipleship? Well, the Bible's pretty clear. He called them while they were working. They were fishermen. This was their trade. They're doing their job, and Jesus calls them in the very act of them doing their job. And he says, come and follow me. And we read that they literally left. They forsook their nets. When you look at that word forsook in the original language, it carries the idea of giving up a thing, not to follow a thing, not to allow it to hinder me. I love this. They forsook their nets. What does that mean? They, they gave it up because they didn't want it to hinder their following of Christ. This is their livelihood. This is their money-making resource. This is what they do to live. And they said, nope, we're walking away from that 
I mean, James and John literally just leave their dad and the servant in the boat. See ya. And they start to follow Christ. Why? Because they desire to know him deeply. And then when he said follow, they, in obedience, said, okay, we'll follow. They didn't know the plan, the five-year plan, the ten-year plan. They didn't know where this was going to come from, that was going to come from. They didn't care. Because Jesus called them and that was enough. Do you know one of the key phrases that Jesus used was follow me. We say the word believe. It's great to believe. We need to believe and repent and turn from our sins, of course. But follow me was the call of discipleship. Now, if you read in John's gospel, for example, if you've ever studied the gospels and looked for a harmony among the gospels, you'll find out that in John's gospel, we read that before this calling into discipleship, Andrew and John, who were both disciples of John the Baptist, trusted in Christ, following him unofficially after his baptism. So in John's gospel, we read a little bit of a backstory that Mark doesn't give us. Again, Mark's giving us just the snapshots. John and Andrew, followers of John the Baptist, see Jesus come and get baptized and decide, hey, John just said that's the Savior of the world. John just said he's going to take away the sins of the world. We're following him. Sorry, John. (laughs) It's great. We've loved following you, but now we're going to follow the Messiah, the, the one you said is the Savior. And they begin to follow unofficially. This isn't a call into discipleship. They just believe in who Jesus is and begins to follow him. Here we read at a later point... Jesus actually officially calls them into discipleship. He says, now I want you to actually follow me. Not just believe, but follow. And so it's an interesting dynamic here as this begins to happen. The key here is that Jesus called and they followed. He desired to make them fishers of men. Obviously, this is a play on their profession. They were very good fishers. They, they, they were good at what they did. They, they fished well. They, they, they made a living on this. And so Jesus says, I'm going to change your very profession. You're no longer going to fish for fish. You're going to fish for men. And it sounds odd to us when we think about that, but really that was a great illustration for them to understand what Jesus' purpose in their life would be. Notice, though, the text does not say, come you after me in verse 17, and I will make you become fishers of men based on your ability to fish. Notice he doesn't say that. He says, I will make you to become fishers of men. Jesus is the one that will make them fishers of men. So often we tell Jesus, I would follow you into that ministry or this thing or this calling, but I'm just not there yet. I'm not good enough. I'm not ready. I'm not able. No, no, no. Jesus says, oh, no. The only part you need to do is just follow. You make the choice to follow, and I will lead you, and I will do the work to make you reproducers or distributors of my grace. It is the work of the Spirit of God through Christ that gives us the ability to lead others to Christ and make disciples. This is truly the whole emphasis of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. If you're taking notes, you've probably studied that before, but Acts 1 8, a powerful reality. After the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses. And isn't it amazing? He gives us all that we need to be the witness he calls us to be for his glory. He says, no, no, don't go yet. Wait. Wait for the coming of the Spirit. David Platt says it this way. He can almost imagine Jesus telling Peter, listen, just do me a favor. Just wait till the Spirit comes. You run out there on your own. You're going to screw the whole thing up. I love that. It's almost as though Jesus is like, look, you got to wait because in your own strength, you're going to mess it all up. 
It's not going to happen the way it needs to happen. But if you wait and the spirit comes and you have that indwelling of the spirit of God, now you have the power to be my witness. Here's a beautiful thing, Christian. You don't have to wait. At the moment of salvation, the Bible says that you receive the spirit of God in fullness. Romans chapter 8 says that we have his spirit if we are his. And you are his in Christ if you know him as Savior. So you have the spirit. You, can't, you don't got to wait. You can just go and allow the spirit of God to begin to work and give you the words to say. So here we see this call into discipleship. I love their immediate nature of their surrender. They didn't wait. They went. They just followed. Now, were they perfect followers and disciples of Christ? Was Peter a perfect follower of Christ from this point forward? No, absolutely not. Many of the disciples struggled in different areas of their faith, but that's not the reason they were called. They weren't called because they were perfect. They were called and they responded in faith and therefore God used them greatly. Not because they were perfect followers, but because he's a perfect savior that can use anyone that says we surrender to him. I've heard and I've even read commentaries that talk about why fishermen would be great to choose as disciples. Why Jesus would choose fishermen because of this or that reason or whatever. The reality is they had nothing to offer. They had nothing to offer. This is why in the book of Acts, what is the religious leader's response to these disciples? They're unlearned, ignorant men. That's That's the testimony of these disciples. Unlearned and ignorant men. Referring to more the religious areas of life. And yet, what do they say right after that? But we know they've been with Jesus. We know they've been at the foot of Jesus. And therefore, look at how they've turned our whole city upside down. See, it's not your ability that Jesus sees that he calls you based on that. No, 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 no. He calls you because he has a plan and a purpose for you. And he gifts you with talents and abilities and gifts. Yes, but when we don't even exercise those things appropriately, he still calls us and says, just follow me and I'll work all that out. I'll use you for my glory. And so here we see these men that still had weaknesses called into discipleship. So we've reached a point in Mark that's kind of an interesting transition. We've established the beginning of the ministry of Christ, but now we're moving into a different portion of Mark. And really from Mark 1, 21 through the end of the gospel, Mark begins to uh, explain or expound on the statement he made in verse 1. Mark has established the start of Jesus' ministry. Now he is going to establish that Jesus is the Son of God, as stated in verse 1. So verse 1 explains the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He talks about the beginning of the ministry, John the Baptist, the temptation that Jesus overcame. He was victorious in the wilderness. He stood as the the faithful servant of Israel. Then we read of this calling of these disciples. And now in verse 21, we begin to unpack that he truly is the son of God. This is the evidence that Jesus is the son of God. Verses chapter 1, 21 and on. So we're not going to read, obviously, the whole rest of Mark this morning. But let's look at chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. The first evidence that we're going to see mentioned here, and it's un unpack the rest of the gospel is his words, his words. What is the evidence that Jesus is the son of God? We see it in his words. Verse 21 of Mark one. And they went into Capernaum and straightway, there's that phrase again, on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. 
So Jesus has a teaching ministry. That's what we call this, the teaching ministry of Christ. And there's two responses that usually came from his teaching ministry. They were mixed results, but usually there was two basic results or outcomes from his teaching. The first one was one of astonishment. When you read in verse 22, it says, and they were astonished, not at his works, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, but at his words, the very teaching of Christ left them astonished. It says here at his doctrine, the word doctrine just means teaching. So when we say study doctrine, we mean study the teaching of Jesus or the teaching of the disciples, the the word of God. We're studying these doctrines, the teachings of the word of God. This astonishment was because the people were amazed that his teaching was so different than the other scribes and rabbis and teachers. There was something intrinsically different about it. The difference was that he taught with his own inherent authority. He had his own authority when he spoke, not as the scribes who usually cited other rabbis to substantiate their own teaching. They would teach something and then say, well, it's like so-and-so says. It's like rabbi so-and-so says. It's like like scribe so-and-so says. They're giving authority to their teaching by quoting someone else. Jesus stood and just spoke. He just taught the word of God. He didn't need to cite anyone else to give authority to his words. He was the authority. He was the one that was speaking with authority. The word for authority here, again, in the original language, carries the idea of lawful power to rule. I love that. When it says that he spoke with his own authority, he was speaking with lawful power to rule. What that means is he had the authority and it was lawful. He was the one that could speak the word of God without worrying about citing someone else for authority because it was his words. When he would stand and read scripture, those were his words. And we know that when God spoke the word of God, the spirit of God spoke those and gave those, inspired those to the men and those that would write scripture. But when Jesus spoke, he was speaking the very words of God. In the beginning was the word and the the word was God and the word is God. Jesus is the word. The very mind of God communicated to us through the person of Christ. He stood and spoke with great authority, broken down. That idea of lawful power to rule, broken down that power, comes from within of his own existence. When you look this phrase up in the original language, it carries this idea of it's within, it's inherent. It's it's an inward power. And this is our Jesus. This is the one that stood and spoke. And so many people have said, and I've referenced this before, man, if I could go to church and hear Jesus speak, like, I mean, see Jesus up on stage and he's speaking, man, that would be powerful. That would be something to really, I mean, to see Christ speaking the word of God. But, but brothers and sisters, when we open the word of God and we read the word of God, he may not be here physically in the flesh, but he is speaking his word to us today. And the problem is not, is the word of God being spoken? The problem is, are we receiving it the way we need to? Are we, are we digesting the food that is being provided to us? I've always used this illustration when my kids were little, real little. They loved hot dogs, mac and cheese. Right? If I gave my, well, Josiah especially, if I gave Josiah chicken nuggets and mac and cheese, he'd be happy every meal. It's kind of like me and Chinese food. We're good. 
But as a good father, is it wise for me to give my son, as he's growing, chicken nuggets and mac and cheese only? We need to give him nutritional things and things that would help his body to grow and help him as an individual. And so often we forget. And we come to God's word and we want mac and cheese and chicken nuggets. We want the the ice cream sundaes. We want the good sweet stuff. We want our favorite dish. And man, we love eating that stuff. We love digesting that, those verses. Those verses that talk about his grace being for us. That he's with us and never forsake us. We love that verse in Philippians. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's Sundays. That's good stuff. That's ice cream. But we don't want to read the verses before that talk about the fact that that church was receiving that word because they had given out of their lack to supply the missionary needs of the Apostle Paul. They had given so greatly to the ministry of Paul that they actually had needs because they gave it away. Then Paul says, but my God shall shall supply all your needs. See, we want the ice cream. But sometimes we've got to realize we've got to get some nutrition too. Sometimes God's word is going to give us something to eat that we don't want to eat. We don't feel like eating it. No, I don't want to eat that. I don't like that. I don't want broccoli today, Lord. I just want some ice cream. But we know if we don't get the nutrition we need, we're going to be left unable to do what God has called us to do. And so we don't get to tell God, no, I don't want to eat that. Just give me this. We get, to, we get the whole counsel of God's word. And it's for our good and for his glory. So he's had astonishment was one of the outcomes of the teaching ministry of Christ. The other outcome that we read of is criticism in different forms, but basically criticism. This is usually from the religious, ironically. They question his teaching because it made them uncomfortable and challenged their man-made traditions. He questioned, they questioned his teaching because it made them uncomfortable and challenged their man-made traditions. Things that the religious had always done. Well, wait, wait, we've always done it this way. You can't come in here and tell us something different. And this is where he has to teach his authority that he has every right to come in and say, you've done it wrong. It's the blind leading the blind. And so there's many examples of this in the Gospels. Moving forward in the Gospel of Mark, we're even going to see some in later chapters dealing with the disciples and the washing of hands. But it's criticism, astonishment and criticism. The two responses of Jesus' teaching ministry. A subject, again, this criticism is not mentioned here specifically, but prevalent throughout his earthly ministry. The teaching ministry of Christ is of great importance to us today. It reminds us that the message of Christ is to repent and believe, and that is the same message today. And I believe these two responses are really the two same responses we get today from the teaching ministry of Christ. I think when you see the word of God proclaimed, you get astonishment, those that are left in all of the teaching of Christ and criticism. Well, who is he to tell me that I can or can't do this? Who is he to tell me that I have to do this or that? Astonishment and criticism. But we have to ask ourselves, do we respond in faith because he has the authority to teach me these things? Or do we puff up our own supposed authority and pride and reject his teaching? So many are looking for the powerful experiences of God or the moves of God they've been called. And yet we ignore the greatest miracle of all that we can read the very words of God. We see his words were evidence of his authority as the son of God, but we also see his works. We're going to look at an amazing example here in verses 23 through 28. And we're going to read this one example. Obviously there's many more, 
But we see this first miracle of Christ that's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. So it says this in verse 23. And there was in their synagogue, so Jesus is teaching, and there's a synagogue there, that's where he's teaching on the Sabbath, a man with an unclean spirit, or a demon. And he cried out, not the man, but the spirit inside him, the unclean spirit. It says here in verse 23, and he cried out, verse 24, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. Just could you imagine this, seeing this happen? Verse 26, And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed. See, again, there's that, we're astonished at his teaching and we're amazed at his works. There's this response that we have. It says, they were all amazed insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, what, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread ab- abroad throughout all the region around about Galilee. We see his words are powerful, leave us in awe of his teaching. But here we see an example of his great works. Not only did Jesus speak the words of God with great authority, he did the works of God with great authority. He performed many miracles of many different kinds. Mark records roughly 18 miracles. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke record 20 of these miracles. And John records 8 of these miracles. Again, this is not an issue for us. Some might say, well, they should all be in all of them, but not necessarily. The reason is God is going to use each individual gospel writer to record what God needs him to record. And some of the authors were emphasizing different miracles or different aspects of Christ's ministry than others. There's nothing wrong with this. There's no contradiction in this. It's merely God using these authors in different ways. But here in Mark's gospel, you're going to read roughly 18 different miracles. And the miracles of Jesus were done for very specific reasons. The first reason was proof of his divinity. It showed that he really was the son of God. Remember, all of this is for what purpose? To affirm Mark 1.1. He is the son of God. And so this affirms his divinity, his authority to teach the word of God, and his authority to do the work of God, the will of God. It also glorified the father. Many times Jesus would glorify the father before performing or after performing a miracle. But also one of the key things is the, bless, the blessing of the recipient. This man in the synagogue with the unclean spirit was being tormented by this unclean spirit. Lived with this thing. Dealt with this thing. We don't know for how long, but presumably for a long period of time. And when Christ set this man free, the man was blessed in response to that. So it's to prove his divinity, to glorify the father, and to bless the recipient. In this first miracle we read of in the Gospel of Mark, I think it is important to note that this miracle displayed Jesus' power over demonic forces. This affirms that Satan and Jesus, despite what some have taught, are not brothers or not equals. Jesus is the Son of God alone, God himself, and he has power over Satan. Remember when we spoke of the temptation of Christ in the earlier part of Mark, Jesus ends the temptation. Jesus is the one that put an end to that temptation when you read Matthew 4, not Satan. Again, showing his authority. Notice as well that it was the teaching of Christ that drew this demon to cry out. 
I find this so amazing. It was the teaching of Christ, the words of God, which caused the unclean spirit to cry out in the first place. The unclean spirit knew who Jesus was and how is he identified? The Holy One of God. This reminds us of the words of Isaiah when he referred to God as the Holy One. This Holy One that is above all. The demon recognizes that Jesus is, in fact, the Holy One of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And what is his response? Why does he speak out? Out of fear. This demon is fearful. And he actually asks, have you come here to destroy us? Have you come here to destroy us? This is, I can only imagine sitting in this service. I mean, you're left in awe of the teaching of Christ, and then this scene starts to unfold in front of you. And I think I would be like this crowd. I would go, what is this thing? That's why I love the word of God. It's so real. In so many ways, it depicts our response to these things. What is this thing? Who is this guy that even the demons obey his authority? Even the demons submit to his leadership. This demon, it cries out. And notice he refers to him as Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Mark emphasizes the humanity of Christ, not at the expense of his divinity. He still affirms he is the son of God. He opens with that. But there's a lot of emphasis on the humanity of Christ. And he's identifying this Jesus of Nazareth that others look down upon, that others you're going to read in future chapters will actually reject him in his own hometown. This demon says, oh no, Jesus of Nazareth, you are the Holy One. And this is amazing to me. Not only does the Spirit of God, the Word of God affirm his identity, even his enemies affirm his identity. Even those who are opposed to him have to identify who he really is. This reminds me of the verse in James later on in the New Testament. James chapter 2, verse 19. James says this about those that were living in fruitless faith, as I call it. They say they had faith, but there was no evidence of their faith. And James says that faith is dead. And he says basically in chapter, chapter 2, verse 19, James writing to the church says this. You believe that there is one God. You do well. It's good that you believe that, he says. You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. He's actually kind of taking a jab at these supposed Christians who say they believe, but their belief doesn't make them tremble. There's no result to their faith. It's just, oh yeah, sure, I believe, but there's no fruit to it. There's no evidence to it. He says, hey, the demons believe, and because they believe, they actually tremble. See, we see that here in Mark chapter 1. This demon was terrified of Jesus. And assumed, okay, you've only come for one reason, to destroy us. To destroy us. Notice Jesus says, be quiet, and the demon obeys that. Come out of him, and the demon obeys that. So here we see the teaching of Christ and the works of Christ affirm his very authority. In verse 28, and immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. People began to talk. And through the rest of the gospel of Mark, even in these early chapters, you're going to find people start saying things, speaking things, talking about things. You're going to find out in the next few verses, people start bringing people to him to be healed. And it's amazing how this gospel begins to unfold, how the ministry of Christ begins to take, kind of take root in this area and begin to spread. But a question we have to ask ourselves, as we've been subjected to the teaching of Christ and the works of Christ, how will we respond to the words and works of Christ this morning? Will we sit in awe and merely respect Christ? Or will we move from awe 
to submission, to surrender in Christ and worship him as Savior. The choice is ours. He gives us the same choice he gave this crowd. You can be in awe of Christ and still die in your sin and be cast into hell. It's not amazement or astonishment he asks us to display. It's, it's faith in him. It's responding in obedience, repenting of our sin, and trusting in him. As we continue to read through this amazing gospel, we will see that from here until the end of the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. We will see examples, page after page, of the power of his teaching and the power of his miracles. I want to encourage you for next week and just for your own blessing to read chapters 2 through 5. We're going to be in chapter 6 next week. So read chapters 2 through 5. We'll get into chapter 6. But allow God to speak to you this week, to encourage you in his word, and to allow it to move you from, man, this is an amazing Savior, to this is my amazing Savior, and I'll live for you. I pray that God would continue to work in all of this as we bow our heads in a word of prayer. As you're there in your seats and your heads are bowed, and you begin to pray. I don't know what your prayer sounds like this morning. Maybe for some it's, it starts a lot, an awful lot like, I'm sorry, Lord. Maybe your prayer begins with a, a cry of asking for forgiveness and repentance because there's something that God has been working on you with. The Spirit of God has been convicting you about a certain sin in your life or a certain area that you need to give over to him. And maybe this morning, in your prayer time, you would just give that to him this morning. That you would ask him to remind you of his grace for you. That you would move from awe to submission. That Jesus isn't just someone you respect as a religious figure and teacher. But based on his own words and his own works, you would believe that you would trust him as Savior and ask him to forgive you of your sins. Believing that he died on the cross for your sins as he did for my sins. And that salvation is not going to church or getting baptized or being a good person or doing good things. Salvation is wrapped up in one key fact. Receiving Christ as Savior, confessing our sins, asking him to save us, believing that he died on the cross for us and rose again surrendering our life to him, saying, Lord, my life is yours. And making that decision from self-absorbed to Christ-centered, we move from a destiny that would lead us to a place called hell to the road of eternal life that's guaranteed heaven. And not by our works, but by receiving what he's already done. So maybe you, in this prayer time this morning, would make that decision to trust Christ as Savior, to believe for the very first time and ask him to forgive your sins. Maybe you're here today and as you continue to pray, you're a believer, you've trusted Christ, you know him, but if you're honest in your daily walk, you've drifted in the following of believing those things. And maybe you would pray and ask God to give you wisdom in those areas that you can surrender to him, that you would ask him to open up your eyes and open up your understanding to know where and how and in what ways to serve. I truly believe that Jesus came to this world to seek and to save that which was lost. And I believe that he's left us in this world 
that we might, with his gospel, seek out those that need to know him, share that message with them that they would come to know Christ. It's an amazing gift to be entrusted with the gospel of Christ. I pray that we would, with great joy, enjoy the relationship we have because of it with him and allow him to use us in whatever way he sees fit for his glory alone. Father, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for this message. I pray that you've used it to encourage hearts and open minds into the reality of what you have for us. Lord, I pray that my words did not hinder or grieve the Spirit in any way, but that you were able to work in spite of my inabilities. I pray that you have been glorified and will be glorified. And I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would stop playing church, that they would stop thinking that they're good enough, but they would realize that we all need grace and you are the only way unto the Father. So I pray that they would right there where they are, stop believing the lies of the enemy, stop thinking that there's no way you could ever love them and know that they are loved beyond belief. Their grace is for them. And for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I pray, Father, you'd work and draw those of us as believers, myself included, who have drifted at times, got our eyes off you. Help us to make you known as we enjoy the relationship that you've given to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we are lighting a song of invitation? Would you come? Maybe you want to bow a knee and just spend some time in prayer. Maybe God is working in your life about something I didn't even talk about. Maybe you'd come and say, Lord Jesus, would you just be with me in this way? I give this to you, whatever it is, mom and dad, husband and wife, grandma, grandpa, individual, it's a family. Would you come? Would you pray? There in your seats or here in the front and ask God to work as we spend the time responding to him this morning.